0: In the background, you can just make out a grand white theater reaching up into the dark sky. Three flags are blowing hard, the bright yellow and blue whipping back and forth. Closer in there are hundreds of white sandbags, piled into a wall, some parts of it easily four or five feet tall. It is imposing, but hanging from the barricade is a cloth banner painted to read Odessa, Ukraine. It makes for a strange and jumbled stage. In the foreground, five Ukrainian soldiers stand in their camouflaged uniforms with black beanies pulled down over their ears to keep out the cold. Two of them are holding trumpets. One in the middle, shoulders a tuba, and then a trombone, and the last one is trying to wrangle a French horn, standing up, a little bit awkward, and they are playing. Some of the notes crack, but it doesn't matter. They keep on going. Wind blows across the camera's mic, but the tune is unmistakable. Don't worry, be happy, they play. It is as if Bobby McFerrin himself is there singing and dancing with them in the cold street imploring anyone in earshot to join in. In every life we have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry, be happy. This is not a wartime song. And yet, it is beautiful and stark and arresting, knowing that they are playing this while shells are dropped on their country. Russian troops are headed towards them, towards their bodies, their city, and still they play on. I watched this shaky video several weeks ago, and it was still echoing for me this week. It, it struck me that in some ways, this is a contemporary version of today's psalm, both expressions of unlikely, seemingly unwarranted joy. It can be hard to remember that our psalms, these ancient songs and poems, are are themselves rooted in stories, in lived experience. What we know here is that the people of Israel have been living in exile in Babylon for a long time. They are far from the homes they built, where they raised their kids, They are struggling still to get by in a foreign place, a foreign culture. They miss the taste of the familiar things they once grew. They miss the freedom and security they once enjoyed without much thought. There are various opinions on when exactly our psalm today would have been written. Some say that it was after they had finally come home and were beginning to rebuild, knowing that it would take years. But Robert Alter offers another possibility. He is a Hebrew scholar who has spent decades working on new translations of these texts and he proposes that this is a psalm grounded squarely in hope. Alter explains that poetic Hebrew, like here in the psalms, has more flexibility with tenses than we have in English. He suggests that the opening lines of this psalm are better rendered in future tense, and that when this psalm was written, When it was sung, the people of God had not yet returned home. They're still hurting, still longing for that homeland, wondering if their community will return in their lifetime. As these words are written, exile has not ended. Their losses have not magically been transformed into plenty. It is from within that place of still reaching for return and for restoration that the psalm arises. But it's more brazen than just wishing for some distant day. It's not just that they will celebrate when this goodness finally comes around. Even as they are longing, Even as they continue to ask God for this restoration, they are already preparing themselves to celebrate. While they are suffering and waiting and wondering what may transpire, the people of God give thanks. It's right there in the middle of the psalm. As Alter renders it, they anticipate the good that is on the way, and they declare We shall rejoice. We shall rejoice. Already they are sure of this. Not hedging their bets and waiting to see what actually happens. But recognizing the good that has carried them this far. Already they are turning towards rejoicing still in the midst of everything. The psalm shows us how a whole great community gathers to sing, to dream, to give thanks. And then in our gospel, Mary shows us how to zoom in, how to live out this love, one with another. Mary has been sitting at Jesus' feet for some time now, taking in his teaching, learning His ways. It's all come to a head in recent days. Her brother Lazarus died despite their best efforts to get Jesus there in time to do something. And then he did do something, raising him from the dead. It was a move of wonder. And also of shock, jolting the religious leaders, putting a target squarely on Jesus' head. The authorities have it out for him now, trying to arrest him. He's been in hiding until now, until they gather again to celebrate the Passover. It's there, back in the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus, That we pick up today. I can can see the heads turning. The eyes popping as Mary takes out this lavish amount of perfume. It is an obscene amount. And then begins to anoint Jesus. It is intimate. And tender. And as Jesus' names, necessary. This act is also deeply rebellious. It is a flagrant rebuke to the powers that be, those who want to squelch this abundant love, who want to reign in this overflowing life. They are so troubled by this unbridled life that they witness in the raising of Lazarus and, and now, this insistence on love when these people should be terrified? It's these defiant acts that make the authorities desperate to arrest him, to get rid of him. Mary knows this. She's been listening, watching. I suspect she knows she probably won't have the chance to anoint Jesus' body when he is killed, so she doesn't waste time. She finds a way to cut through the worry, the present danger, and love her friend well right now. She cares for him extravagantly. They rejoice together, with what time they have. I don't know how those Ukrainian soldiers gather the heart to play that cheerful song there in the face of war. I don't know how Mary summons the strength to offer such kindness, even as she hears death knocking. I wonder if their stomachs turn as they play. I wonder if she shakes as she cares for him. I wonder if fear mingles with the joy, how far the grief they anticipate seeps in around the edges. I don't know. What I see, though, What I hear is this profound insistence to choose song and love when so much attempts to rob them from us. And here's the call. That right there, that's the call as we push deeper into Lent, as we prepare to turn the corner into Easter. It runs contrary to so much we've been told about what penitence is, that Lent should feel like a trudging time of waiting, of somber preparation, maybe of punishment. Here the psalmist tells us otherwise, and Mary shows us how to do it. Even while we are still in exile, still trekking in the, de- in the direction of a distant home, we shall rejoice. We will dream and hope, not holding out for the good we long for. And even as our beloveds suffer, as we face dangers known and unknown, we will care for one another extravagantly. We will love tenderly right now. May it be so. As we wade through the unknown of this ever evolving pandemic, we give thanks. As bombs drop and buildings crumble, we sing. It is an act of holy defiance. A bold claim that the final truth is one of life and love. This is how we get ready for Easter. Even here, especially here, we shall rejoice.